I think the question of, you know, how do you get started is like literally the most asked in the universe. I never know how to answer it uh, because for me, I just love that process of figuring out, you know, what, what are you trying to do? Break it into small steps and trip away at it. Dropping out of college to start a company is something I and many of my friends have thought about doing, but less of a reality and more of a what-if scenario. Hey there and welcome. I'm Kate Chen, and you're listening to Roads Less Taken, an initiative to explore the paths and careers many students, myself included, dream about doing but never actually pursue. This week, I'm talking to Helena Merck, founder and CEO of Glimpse, a community engagement startup. Two years ago, Helena took her chances, and since leaving Duke University after her sophomore year, she and her co-founder Brian were accepted into Y Combinator and have grown their venture-backed company to host over 100,000 video chats. In this episode, we'll be uncovering how she decided to drop out and pave her own path as an entrepreneur. So Helena, it's really great to have you with me today. So excited to be here. Thank you, Kate. I'm honored to be your first guest. Well, let's just jump right in. So your company, Glimpse, is doing super well. And it's amazing because you're literally 21 years old. You'd be a senior in college if you hadn't left. When did you really start thinking about dropping out? When did I start thinking about dropping out? Um, Probably far more frequently than I should have, being full-time enrolled. Uh, Every weekend, I would probably spend at a hackathon or building things that I wanted to do. Kind of frustrated already that things I was doing in class weren't going anywhere outside of, you know, to a letter on my transcript. Uh, And that was always a frustrating feeling. And really the the seed was planted when I had an opportunity to take a semester off and intern um, at a company during the spring of my sophomore year. Um, So that was the pull factor I needed that balanced out all the pushes that were already kind of in place, building that frustration with being on campus. Definitely. I feel like a lot of you know, student entrepreneurs feel that way about their classes. And I know you did a lot of hackathons and projects too in high school. I'm kind of curious, like, why did you even decide to go to college? That's a great question. So I grew up in the Bay Area, in Palo Alto, surrounded by all the large tech companies, you know, from Facebook to Tesla. And all of my friends' parents worked at these companies. The amount of field trips I did to Google's campus is, like, baffling. Um, And I was exposed to all these things early on and naturally you know, started coding and found that it was an amazing way to, of building things. One of my first apps was like this educational tool for little kids. I was in um, seventh or eighth grade um, and it was my first app I launched in the app store. And I used my sister as like a beta tester. So I would make her test it, um, iterate and do it again. And I had no idea that was the design process, but I was doing exactly that. Um, continued that throughout high school and started interning in places, but something felt off. I had always wanted to use tech to have an impact to do something meaningful. And the internships at software engineering companies where I was just one of the many software engineers, they didn't fulfill anything. They were just kind of work. You were coding, you were a code monkey. Um, and I so much more enjoyed, you know, when I was building things for fun. Um, so the idea of going to college was like, hey, maybe I need to get away from tech. I need to acquire new skills. I need to get away from the Bay Area as possible, go study medicine. Um, and I looked at Duke because of their BME program. Um, and I ended up lasting a whole semester Wow. So you actually came in as a biomedical engineering major. Um, So then when you kind of switched into the arts and sciences school, like why did you choose computer science? Um, So when switching into arts and sciences, I realized that, you know, CS would be an easy major. 
I have experience and I could probably fly through the classes, uh, but I didn't want to do it. So I decided to look for a major that I really desired or seemed like it was really interesting um, and kind of couple that with computer science. And I ended up choosing global health. Uh, so that was cool. And then towards the end of my freshman year, I realized that, you know, I didn't want to do a double major in global health. I wanted to really build my own major and kind of study how can you use uh, tech to reduce health inequities at scale. And that's kind of what I dove into the first semester of my sophomore year uh, until I decided to leave. So it kind of sounds like you were actually interested in medicine, which is surprising to me because like obviously Glimpse, your company now, isn't really a medicine related company. Um, and also the internship that you left school for at SmartCar, also not really in the healthcare field. How have you remedied your interests um, between medicine and tech? I think one of the things I care more about than say medicine itself is equity uh, and access to things. I think having access to transportation, for example, uh, can give you access to better education, to better healthcare, um, and everything else. And I think that's part of also what was super interesting to me in global health, taking a step back, it doesn't look at, um, you know, health as like, I'm a doctor treating a patient, it's looking at it as like a systemic level. Uh, it's more like public policy, I would say, than doing pre-med classes. Um, and that really gives you this like high level picture of like, there's all these systemic problems in the world um, that are causing issues in our society. Uh, and global health really sh shows how all of those affect health outcomes. Um, and what really won me over in joining SmartCar was, you know, sitting down with the co-founders who are brothers and they're fantastic people and having them really talk about why they were doing what they were doing, why building access to better transportation was so impactful in people's wellness. And that was a really interesting Kind of parallel that I didn't make until they kind of pointed that out. Uh, and, it, and it turns out, that, like, while that's true, yes, it was a bit too far removed for me, which is part of what factored into me eventually leaving. Yeah. And, and more on you leaving school. I mean, like, dropping out is never really part of a plan per se. Um, but did you have a plan when you were thinking about your path and dropping out and what that looks like? I think if you ask any of my friends, I am a terrible planner. Like, I just tend not to plan things. And it, has led me to a lot of great places. Like where I am today, I don't think I would get here if I planned every step of my life. It does mean that, you know, everything changes on a moment's notice, but I think I'm learning every step along the way. I'm going to be fully present in what I'm doing and let that kind of guide the journey uh, while still, you know, having aspirations for the long term, but kind of over-optimizing on the journey there is actually more limiting than it is liberating. Mm -hmm. And And college is definitely one of those things that like feels so structured. Like, it's a four-year package, and then after that, you go to grad school or you get a job in whatever thing you majored in. So it's interesting because you mentioned this this whole idea of it's a four-year kind of bucketed time window, and everybody just does what they're supposed to do and kind of goes on to that next step. But at the same time, if you talk to any college student, freshman or sophomore, they're usually having an existential crisis of sorts. And that is kind of interesting because everything should be very laid out for them, and they are just doing exactly what the person before them is doing. But everybody goes through that same existential crisis of what should a major be? What should I do after I graduate? Yeah, and, and that's really interesting because, I mean, I'm the opposite of you. I'm a total type A planner. Um, and the existential crisis is not just freshman and sophomore year. It's like senior year, even after that, even, you know, probably when I'm 30, still going to be having existential crises. Um, and whenever I'm trying to make plans, I kind of always think about, okay, like, what is what is the risk associated with doing this activity? 
Um, and I'm wondering, like, how did you assess personal risk when you were making kind of this big decision to drop out? I would say risk assessment is definitely, it is something that factored into, into everything. Uh, and I would say that, you know, I was very fortunate in having skill set in computer science. I was employable. You know, I had an offer lined up to join this startup full time. Um, in addition to, you know, knowing my own worth and knowing that I could go get a job right now, I don't need a college degree. And that isn't the case for all majors. So that I think is one thing that, you know, I was very fortunate in uh, and I got exposed to that very young. And then the other thing is like my parents, you know, they're in the Bay Area. If anything were to happen, I can go back to my childhood bedroom, right? Like that's okay. And then the third thing, I could just go back to Duke. At any point I could have decided like, hey, Duke, like take me back. I was in good academic standings. I liked my dean, my dean liked me. Um, and I could have just continued. And placing it like that really makes it feel like there's no risk at all. It's just another experience. And I'm, by taking what people consider, quote, riskier, I'm actually just doing something that is different, uh, which can be scary. And I've for a long time now been saying that, like, if, if a decision feels more scary, that's probably what you should be doing, unless it's actually your life at, at risk. If it's just kind of scary in your mind, and that means that you should be doing it because you're going to learn about yourself and learn about the world. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel like this whole concept of like needing to challenge yourself is also something that's a little bit overlooked when we think about like what is a quote good career. But yeah, kind of more in line with the life advice that you're giving. I know you talked to a lot of mentors and other people about this decision to drop out. Um, what were some of the most helpful perspectives that you learned? Great question. <laughs> it's funny because half of the conversations ended in them trying to poach me. Um, and I just thought that was extreme validation in, in, um, in the fact that I should leave because they clearly didn't see much value in a college degree if they were willing to kind of at least interview me on the spot for, for a role at their company. That was never my intention in reaching out to, you know, leaders in the tech space, leaders in healthcare, um, and personal mentors that I've had for years. And they were all super supportive of, you know, whatever I ended up deciding, but yeah, I would say half of them tried to recruit me. Um, and then the other half. Um, just had very kind of challenging questions for me. And those were mostly just to have me think more deeply about my decision-making rather than being kind of flippant. Like one day I was literally saying, I'm going to take this job offer. I'm going to stay at SmartCar. And then the next day I had the exact opposite opinion of like, let me just be a kid and go to college. There's this kind of thought paradigm of like the five whys. And if you can really dive that many layers deep, then um, you kind of understand the motives behind your actions. That was probably one of the most formative kind of conversations. So you mentioned you talked to like leaders in the tech space, leaders in the healthcare space. How did you actually reach out to these people? Cold emails go a long way, especially if you say that I'm thinking about dropping out of college as like the first line, right? So it's interesting how, I don't know if this is a myth or not or wherever you want to place it, but this idea of like college dropouts, building tech companies is like overhyped. But I definitely used that to my advantage when I was kind of reaching out to people. I didn't have anything else to go off of is one thing. Um, but that was like the most topical thing. And it was honest, right? This, this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about, you know, what do you think? Do you think I could make it in the world if I drop out right now? Is it going to risk my career opportunities later? And the reason I was, you know, talking mostly in the healthcare space was that was my really, my, my strongest interest at the time. Um, and now I'm realizing that, you know, you can affect people's wellness in a lot of ways outside of the traditional healthcare space. And I think those end up being even more interesting to me. Um, and also led us into what we're building now. Well, back in Gravitate and now with Glimpse. 
And you actually convinced your co-founder, Brian, to drop out of college too, right? Um, so at the time, he was still at Duke. You were doing a full-time engineering role at Smart Car. What was that conversation like? And what were some of the biggest obstacles you experienced? I think we definitely had very different kind of reasons to leave. Part of it, I mean, I guess the, the breaking point was really getting into Y Combinator. That was like the pact we'd made. Like if we get in, you know, we're both committing, I'm going to quit my job where I was full-time employed at the time and he would leave college. Um, in, in the conversation you're kind of pointing to, this was must've been like September or August of 2019. We got to talking and he was expressing kind of annoyance that nobody was kind of reach, reaching out and like talking to other people and getting to know others because now everyone's kind of stuck in their friend groups. And it was this odd, like isolating experience, even though everyone seemed to be social. Um, and he was talking about other things he was working on, but he didn't seem excited. Uh, and I was just kind of prodding and I was like, you know, Brian, like, what are you doing? Like, why are you still a student? You have all these ideas about how you want to change the world and you're busy running these random events that you don't care about. Um, and in turn, he called me out on being at SmartCart and how it, like you were saying, it didn't really align with all the things that, you know, I had been preaching about doing. We kind of took, <laughs> we kind of took a seat and like took a breath. We're like, huh, like neither of us is really doing what we wanted to be doing and like having that impact. And it's kind of time we should be doing that. Um, and in terms of kind of other barriers, like, yeah, his parents were definitely not on board uh, and neither was my mom. Uh, and I think, and I think for me, that's okay. That was okay. Uh, and I think he got his parents on board as well, but it definitely took some time. And I think any big decision, any change is going to take parents some time. And I think that's okay. But I don't think that should limit you from doing what you want to do or you have to do especially if it, you know, makes you happy. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel like that's such an integral part of growing up as well, like learning that your parents don't always know what's best for you um, and standing up for what you actually want to do, even if kind of everyone else tells you not to do it. So kind of going on to like now Brian has dropped out, you've dropped out, um, you have this idea on how you want to change the world. How did you actually turn that into tangible success? I think we were lucky that we're both technical. You know, we love building things. When we think of a problem, or at least for me, I'm not going to speak for Brian, but, you know, when I walk through the world and I look at things, I think about how do I solve them? And my mind now is wired in, like, how do I solve that with software, with tech? What can I build? How can I help? Um, and the same thing kind of applied here. And our first step was, you know, let's build a prototype. And they were like, no, 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 that's a terrible idea. That should never be a first step. Um, so we built a prototype with no code. And that was painful for me, at least, uh, because I love jumping in and just building like an MVP, even if it just takes like a day or a week. Uh, but the, the better kind of methodology in this is, can I prove my thesis without any code? Uh, and we ended up doing that just with like spreadsheets, a lot of spreadsheets uh, and a lot of like handwritten emails and all this other stuff. Uh, and our original idea was, you know, can we help college students meet up one on one for a meal? with someone they haven't met before, just based on like a psychometric analysis. And that turns out to be a very generic bad idea. Um, <laughs> every college probably has a startup that's trying to do the same thing. It dies. And then the next year, you have another one. Uh, and when we were accepted into Y Combinator with this same idea, they call us out on that. And they were like, this is probably the most generic idea that is applied to Y Combinator with. And we we're like, why are we here? <laughs> why would you accept us um and and it came down to like they liked us and they liked our energy and our passion but we didn't know what we were doing we kept pushing for the same idea uh and 
we ended up shifting it and iterating uh, and really trying to learn as much as we could with the same model of like offline meaningful interactions until we eventually decided that like, hey, this offline meaningful interaction is not going to work currently, not in this form. Uh, and we decided to shift that to being online. And then when the pandemic hit, um, that was probably one of the best decisions we've ever made. Yeah. So, I mean, like, it wasn't all smooth sailing with your startup, like since the beginning, obviously you came into this amazing program and they immediately told you like your idea sucks, um, essentially. And how did you find, I guess, like mentorship or resources to really help you figure out like what's the next best thing to be doing for your company? I don't know if there's like a single person or resource. It was mostly just, you know, I guess the energy of being inside of Y Combinator definitely factored into that. Um, but the biggest thing was just actually having, you know, a full dedicated workday every day working on this, right? It was no longer a side project. It wasn't like a weekend hackathon. It was what we were doing. All of our thought and energy was going into this. And, you know, we did have enough experience in building things. It was just um, all the other things that come around, like, you know, running a company, how do you incorporate, you know, how do you pay someone a salary? Uh, how do you pay a contractor? Uh, and all these things you don't really think about, but it's like the logistics that come behind just building a great product that are interesting. Mm-hmm. And and on building that product, actually, you said that you started out with no code. When was the point that you actually started to code? When we got an offer to interview and they told us that, hey, your interview is in one week. And we're like, oh, we probably need a product. <laughs> so we built it quickly. Uh, and we were ready to kind of show them the MVP and be like, this is what we're going to launch. And they didn't even ask for it. All they asked for was their numbers. And we had kind of wasted the last week rather than preparing for the interview, building this really crappy iOS app. So if you were to do that again, like when would you say is actually the time when people should start coding if it is like a technical product that they're building? It depends on what you're building and it depends on what your skill sets are. If you aren't a coder, if, if you have to pay somebody to code this, then as late as possible. If it is a very technical problem, say you are an API company, uh, it's going to be very hard to kind of validate that um, until you actually have an API built out. There's other ways of validating without um, a built out MVP, such as just like talking to our customers, seeing, uh, there's this thing, I forget what they're called, like ghost pages or something like that, ghost buttons. Um, like I could on Glimpse put a, web, put a link that doesn't go anywhere but I could track how many times are people clicking on that? How many times are people signing up for this service that doesn't even exist? Building a landing page rather than the product. Um, all of those things help you evaluate whether or not this is something you should pursue if there's enough demand. Uh, and then an even better thing is like, in addition to just that landing page, like imagine adding a pricing page on that, like as a second page and seeing which of the pricing plans people pick on. Are people gonna go through the entire flow about to pay and then, they tell, and then tell them like, this doesn't exist yet. We appreciate your interest. That's a great way of gaining kind of insight into what people are looking for. Uh, and we didn't do any of that when we started. You know, we were, truth be told, like we were a consumer social product. And so a lot of these things don't even apply because uh, we were trying to just make end users happy. We we're trying to make college students happy. And if you try to build anything in consumer social, you know that people will lie to you. So while, you know, mentors and Y Combinator was telling us the idea is terrible, when we're talking to users, you're like, yeah, this is great. Why would you ever end this? And we had plenty of success stories and anecdotes of like, yeah, I still hang out with the person I met through Gravitate. We go scuba diving together. And that's amazing. You know, we impacted dozens of people's lives. 
not millions, not billions, but dozens. And and that's okay. We and we learned a lot a lot along the way. I mean, like it sounds like there's always going to be conflicting opinions around kind of like your startup. Um, and obviously you had conflicting opinions, like users were telling you this is great. Um, y Combinator was telling you this sucks. So how do you like make sense of it all um, on if it actually is good? Love that question. Um, everybody will tell you something different and people will try to, you know, make you feel good about what you're doing and motivate you to stick with it. Uh, this sunk cost fallacy thing. You know, I've already spent a year working on this. It's my child, but it's not taking off. And you're going to say, I've already spent a year. I need to give it a little bit more, one last shot. And you're going to keep telling yourself that. And that's normal, but that's not going to work. And it ends up coming down to you being honest with yourself. No one person is going to tell you how to run your company, how to solve the problem. Um, There's a lot of anecdotes with people being told that their companies suck and then they keep grinding away at it. And then five years later, it's like a billion dollar company and again, an IPO soon, right? And that means somebody was wrong along the way. Plenty of people are wrong along the way. Um, It just depends on how much do you want to push and struggle to get there. Uh, And I think the only kind of honest player in all of this is your data. So from day one, record every single action in your product. If it's a consumer product, your users are never going to tell you the truth. Right? They're going to say, oh, I want the button to jiggle more. And then the next person say, I don't like the colors. But those things don't matter. What matters is what they end up doing and if they end up coming back uh, and if they end up sharing it with their friends. Those are a lot stronger indicators than actual feedback from an end user. If you're doing B2B uh, and say you're selling you know, a solution for like an infrastructure need, that's very different. They're going to give you like, these are the specs of what I need and I can get quantitative analysis of like, how fast is this working? Great. How many errors does it have? Great. What's your uptime? Great. You don't have any of that in building things for consumers. You mentioned kind of if something's not taking off, then you pivot or you move on. Um, how do you gauge actually like taking off? That <laughs> I, I remember that was a question I asked um, a long time ago because Gravitate at the time was kind of hobbling along. You know, we were gaining usage here and there, but you feel it internally, you know, when it's not having that momentum and that traction. When something does take off, you know it does because your servers light on fire because you didn't build something scalable. Uh, and that actually happened a few weeks back when we were running um, the event for Grease Hopper. And that was, that was exciting. Um, you know, and while yes, you never want things to crash because you have too much usage, it's one of those like bittersweet kind of situations. It's a good kind of problem to have. And I, I would still have, that's definitely not a way of measuring whether or not you have a success of like, is my app crashing? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. We keep going. <laughs> um, that'd be a terrible way of gauging, but it's this kind of sense of it having like a flywheel effect. You know, it's like spreading rapidly, especially if it's a consumer social product, right? It's consumer social and it's spreading word of mouth quickly. Uh, then, then you're onto something and it's worth pursuing and tinkering with, you know, if you're B2B SaaS and the sales are easy, you're also onto something, you know? Um, so I think that, the answer there really depends on the space you're in, um, how hard it typically is to either close a sale or acquire you know, a new user, um, and then comparing yourself against those averages. So, so there's so many things that you actually have to do in order to run a company, just thinking of all the logistics and the operations. Walk me through your day-to-day as a CEO, and, and you can kind of go through before COVID and also during COVID, what it's been like. 
I think ours is, might be a little different uh, because pre-pandemic we were in Y Combinator, which felt like a mini pandemic because it was uh, kind of just all day sprints um, every day, right? We didn't really do anything out of the house because it was an intensive three months where this was our entire life's, like our entire purpose was like, you know, do as well as we can inside of Y Combinator. You know, when it ends, we would tell, tell ourselves like when YC ends, we can have social lives again. You know, we can maybe take Saturdays off, crazy thought, right? We can explore San Francisco. We all moved here to San Francisco in January um, and got a year long lease with the idea that, you know, the first three months will be basically hermits in this house and then it'll be easy. But here we are like nine months later and we're still hermits in the house um, because of the pandemic. And, you know, what work looks like, it's a combination of you know, actually coding uh, to writing emails, to doing user interviews, uh, to doing sales, um, to figuring out marketing stuff, um, thinking about the future. You know, how do we get to that vision? What is our go-to-market strategy? Putting together our pitch deck for fundraising, doing the dishes, uh, kind of, kind of everything. Uh, and it is a lot of context switching, uh, and that's been definitely a lot to to learn. Uh, and learning that you know, when I'm coding, I need to turn everything off and just focus on coding for like a block amount of time. Whereas other things, like if I'm sending emails, I can do that between Zoom calls. Yeah, and you mentioned, I mean, you were 19 when you dropped out, and I think 20 when you started your company, if even that. Um, as such a young founder, did you struggle to maybe like prove yourself to other people or were there any moments of imposter syndrome or people just being like, oh, you're young, you don't know what you're doing? I mean, all of the above. Yes. <laughs> um, I have not been somebody who's had to face a lot of imposter syndrome. Thankfully, one of my first internships back in high school, I was working at a cloud security company and I was asking people around for some advice and just something like a technical problem I was having. I was running into a bug. Um, and I was doing this thing with Docker and Kubernetes, and I didn't know what any of these terms meant. And I asked some people, and nobody did either. And from that moment on, I just realized that like nobody knows what they're doing. Um, they might know like the exact little small niche thing that they're working on, but outside of that, they're just as clueless as you are. Uh, and applying that lens to the world has been super enlightening because nobody knows what they're doing. And if you think you do, that's an even bigger problem. Um, because only when you realize that you don't know something, is when you actually start exploring and unpacking. And then the more unpacking you do, the more you realize that you're missing stuff. So imposter syndrome is one less so, but kind of like overt, just people, like people just saying things to my face that has definitely happened. Everything from like, oh, like, can I talk to the technical founder? I was like, that's me. <laughs> or, you know, can I talk to the CEO? Like, that's still me, but you just gotta keep going. And on the topic of being so young, I mean, Y Combinator is such a competitive program. How did you get in, like, to be candid? Brian <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I had both done a lot and had kind of shown a track record of being able to execute on our ideas. And I think that was it. <laughs> I think it was a combination of, like, you know, us showing that, you know, we were able to execute on what we wanted to do. Um, there were strong people vouching for us. We were very mission-driven. Uh, we had a lot of energy and passion for what we were working on. Even if we didn't maybe have the perfect idea, we were able to kind of prove to them that we were going to do whatever it took to solve this problem. You know, if this doesn't work, screw it. Like we don't care about how we solve it. We care about what we're working on. Uh, and that I think differentiated us from a lot of other people who are applying. Um, something I only realized kind of really when, you know, fully joining an incubator and like doing other things is that, you know, the motives behind people starting companies 
are extremely different. And like, you kind of know this at the surface level, but then it like really permeates throughout the people's entire persona. Um, when you're speaking with them about, you know, what your vision is for a company, you know, we want to make everyone feel like they belong in this world and help them build healthy relationships. And then you talk to somebody else and they just want to exit to a company and make money and do it again. I just can't relate to that at all. Um, and that was a majority of our batch. Uh, and in all honesty, like maybe it was just refreshing that we came in there with like, you know, this is how we're changing the world. Even if, you know, we're two young kids who just want to build a place for people to meet each other. Maybe our naivete gave us that energy uh, that they were looking for. Mm-hmm. And, and you can always learn the business side of things. You can always learn the lingo, um, learn about how the industry works. And I'm kind of curious, like, how did you guys actually navigate that space? I know you guys did like funding rounds. What was that like? Well, Y Combinator was really good about at least teaching us about lingo. You know, how do you not sound dumb when you're talking to investors? Uh, there's also a lot of great books, you know, I was focused on reading. One's called Venture Deals. Highly recommend. Because there is just so much so many words you have to know to not sound dumb. Uh, but I think the biggest takeaway was really just that it is literally just who you know. Um, it's all about, can you be introduced to the right person? And then they give you money. And there's so much money in venture capital. Uh, the inflations of you know, people's valuations are just so incredibly high. Um, I, if, I, if I went back to myself at two years ago, I might've just told myself like, hey, like just, just build like, you know, a small business, make enough money to have an impact and keep it running or do the venture capital route because in the past like the venture capital kind of way of building a business was the only way that was kind of exposed to me right that you you raise a seed round then you raise a series a then you use series b and you keep going a lot of incubators why Combinator including have kind of commoditized what what it is to run a startup um and they've made it this kind of machine where they're churning out billion dollar companies um and i only realized that after we kind of completed the program and raised money and it's really interesting to kind of reflect on. Uh, and I definitely don't want to fall into that. I, I still want to be a mission-driven company um, that's fighting towards like a greater vision uh, rather than you know a company that's building itself to be sold or exited. Yeah, and kind of speaking of the money, I know a lot of people when they think of starting a company or dropping out, one of the first questions is like, am I going to be able to support myself? Am I going to make money? Can you maybe speak a little bit about that? I mean, I'm a very like minimalistic person. I need a roof on my head and I need clothing and my computer and Wi-Fi. Uh, and, and that's about it. Uh, and I did have savings from internships uh, and from working full-time um, that I could use. And then now I'm just paying myself minimum wage and, and that's going well so far. It definitely depends on how risk averse you are. Like, and if you're pouring your own money into it, right? Like let's say you have 50K in the bank and you're gonna self-fund this thing, you're gonna bootstrap it and build. That's definitely a lot riskier than saying, you know, I have my personal savings and those are mine. And I'm going to take money from Y Combinator. They give us 150,000 and use all of that to manage all of my expenses. So I am not depleting my personal fund. That's my like rainy day fund. Um, and instead I have capital. And that is why, you know, things like Y Combinator exist. You know, they're, they're able to give you that initial money to de-risk the entire experience and to, you know, improve access to entrepreneurship. So while I did say, yes, you know, it might be commoditized or whatnot, it does make entrepreneurship more accessible to everybody. Uh, some people have used YC money to like pay off their student loans, you know, to access with a car so they can get from A to B, right? Like there's core things that you need before you're able to make that leap. And like taking money from my combinator is a great way of like offsetting that, um, that risk. 
All right. Last question. What is your advice to anyone who wants to follow in your footsteps? I guess my biggest advice is like, don't follow footsteps because especially I think with like starting a company, right? If you're an entrepreneur, part of the definition of that is starting something new. You can't do that by following exactly what somebody else did. You can use the same kind of like mental models or processes, uh, but you can't necessarily follow, you know, what you've been taught your entire life, which is like, there's always like a next step for you, you know, whether it's from high school, going to college or graduating from college and getting your first job, there's no set path to building a company. Uh, there are, you know, plenty of advice books out there, but they're all super niche and told by usually one person who has one experience they can share. So keep that in mind when you're hearing advice. It's that people are giving advice with the one example that they have lived through. Um, and you need to figure out, you know, what inspires you, what drives you, what is the problem you want to solve? So I think, you know, the first step is just figuring out, you know, what do you want to solve? And if you don't know what you want to solve, if you're one of those that just wants to build something for the sake of building, that's okay too. But just start, just go build something, show it to people, get feedback and do that again and again and again. Well, Helena, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been so wonderful learning about your journey and story. And I mean, I've known you for a while now and I've learned so much, so it's been really helpful. Um, is there any last things that you want to share with anyone who might be listening? I think the only thing I want to leave you all with is just, you know, do what makes you happy, follow your passions and definitely let people be inspirations but don't try to follow exactly what they did because they are different people. They led different lives and you have to figure out what, you know, what worked for you. And if you're interested in learning more about, you know, what we do at Glimpse, check us out at joinglimpse.com. Um, thank you so much, Kate. This has been a tremendous experience. No, thank you so much. And everyone definitely check out Glimpse at joinglimpse.com. And they are absolutely amazing. And Helena, I wish you the best with everything. 